It's basically a hockey stick. <laughs> if you look through our world history, if you look at wealth, access to nutrition and, and, and healthcare, nothing happens for thousands of years. And then suddenly, in 200 years, everything happens. But if you look at the part of that chart where most things happen, it's actually in the last 25 years. Uh, since 1990, we've uh, had this tremendous improvement globally in, in these circumstances. Just to pick one example, extreme poverty, the number, the share of people living in extreme poverty has declined from almost four in 10 around the world to less than one in 10 today, which means that 140,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty every day since 1990. Okay, I'm joined today by Johan Norberg. Johan is a historian, author, lecturer, and social commentator, and he's also the author of a number of books, including Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, and Open, the Story of Human Progress. Uh, he's also a very interesting guy, so yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, thanks for the invitation. Um, all right, so I guess we should start by discussing, well, let's discuss um, progress first, and then we can get onto your most recent book, I guess, slightly further into the discussion. So can you give me just a basic outline of what your argument is in progress? Well, my basic outline is that we're ungrateful uh, because we <laughs> take um, everything that makes the modern world and the kind of lives we lead uh, and despite the present pandemic the unprecedented wealth health life expectancy the opportunities we take all of that for granted uh, but it's brand new in in human history if you were to put yourself into a time machine with some sort of going in back into some sort of arbitrary year in world history you would have lived a life in miserable conditions and um, in chronic undernourishment and if you weren't in the top 0.0001%, you would have uh, lived in desperate poverty. And um, so that's why we're ungrateful. We rarely think of that and we take it for granted. So we forget all the important things uh, that uh, make that possible. And I try to explain this in a number of different areas of human experience. So can you give a kind of, breakdown of some of the areas in which we've made great progress and just so that people can get a kind of an understanding of what it is you're referring to when you say that we've made progress in recent years. Yeah well we can take a couple of um, if we take uh, the um, long-term perspective I usually like to begin 200 years ago because I um, think that's when everything happened in, in human history basically until then we lived with a life expectancy around 30 years, uh, around 90% of the world population lived in extreme poverty, around 90% could not read and write. And then suddenly everything began to change. And that was the um, a result of um, long-term change in human thinking, uh, the Enlightenment uh, Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. So look at health for example uh, global life expectancy back then around 30 years which meant that at least i don't know about you 
I wouldn't have been here. And yeah. <laughs> I would have died from one of several medical conditions I've had through, throughout my life. Uh, now, global life expectancy is more than 70 years, above 80 around the world, because of better agricultural productivity, better nourishment, but also medical technology, obviously, uh, the discovery of antibiotics, a uh, revolution of production in um, in um, in analyzing and dealing with medical conditions. The one story that I often return to because it made such a strong impact on me was reading about two different health stories in the same magazine. One about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, the great composer, and one about George, 10-year-old in present-day uh, Europe, I think UK. And um, the one about Mozart showed us that researchers had now looked into his medical condition and why he died. And the conclusion was that he probably died from a sore throat. Yeah. Because that's how you died 200 years ago, even if you were the greatest composer or an emperor. Um, the other one about George was about George having a brain tumor, but the doctors managed to get it out. It was difficult surgery and his heart stopped beating during surgery, but they got the tumor out, revived him, and he was back to his own old happy self. And that's amazing in itself, but it gets even better when you realize that George is not a human being, but a goldfish. Yeah. <laughs> so basically the goldfish is, and the goldfish and the pets we have today have access to better medical technology than the emperors and composers did 200 years ago. And that's just one of, of many aspects of how we little by little, by expanding human knowledge and human ability through technology to deal with our problems, we've managed to create better life circumstances than ever. Yeah, and it's also it's across almost every measure of human happiness, this, that general story applies. So, for example, on something like literacy rates, that's something you spoke about. That's gone up. I can't remember the exact figures, but that's something you've spoken about, which is just unimaginably a large percentage of the population of the world at the moment is literate. I can't remember exactly what the figures are. You might have them to hand. Well, yeah, around 10% used to be able to read and write, 10% of the world population 200 years ago. Today, it's around 10% globally who cannot read and write. So it's been a dramatic turnaround. And that obviously has other implications, because if you can read and write, you can get an access to the knowledge of others. You get a longer and a better education, and therefore you can also help others through uh, new discoveries, new inventions, better business models, and can create more things for others. And then there's also like child mortality rates are just so much, it's something like less, I, I can't remember that. What are the figures for that? You're just, I, there's no point in me trying to remember the figures because you're obviously just way better and all of this stuff. So what are some of the figures on child mortality rates? Yeah, we've actually had the best uh, human health story that we've ever seen uh, when it comes to to child mortality. And that's because, uh, you know, if you go sufficiently a long time, a long back in time, you realize that even for the most powerful people in Europe, the Habsburg family uh, ruled many of the thrones throughout the, the world. They... Um, had around a 50% child mortality rate through a long period. So every second child died. And obviously that was the case for, for lots of people in poorer households as well uh, during that era. Now what we've seen uh, in the last just few decades is a, um, 
an improvement in all over the world, but specifically in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. We've seen that the number of the proportion of children dying before the age of five has declined by 72% since 1950. Uh, so if we had had the same child mortality rate that we had, uh, just if you go just back to 1990, we would have had another 5 million children dying before the age of five. Yeah, it, yeah, it's actually just, it's quite hard to even believe how quick the progress has been in recent years. And so is there a particular period when you think we made this really quick jump? I think you said the last 200 years. Yes, that's if you, it's basically a hockey stick. <laughs> if you look through our world history, if you look at wealth, access to nutrition and, and, and healthcare, nothing happens for thousands of years. And then suddenly, in 200 years, everything happens. But if you look at the part of that chart where most things happen, it's actually in the last 25 years. Uh, since 1990, we've uh, had this tremendous improvement globally in, in these circumstances. Just to pick one example, extreme poverty, the number, the share of people living in extreme poverty has declined from almost four in 10 around the world to less than one in 10 today, which means that 140,000 people were lifted out of extreme poverty every day since 1990. Yeah, that is just absolutely incredible. Um, right, so I, I really wanna get into what you think the average person gets right and wrong in their understanding of what's going on. But something I really wanna talk about first is, um, why do you think, so, so why do you think in recent years and over the last 200 years, we've seen such a dramatic growth in basically all these areas in a positive direction? Not growth is the wrong word, but you know, I mean, like we moved in a really positive direction across the board. What are the conditions which you think are necessary to allow that to happen in the way that it has? I'd say it happened because of three basic freedoms. It's the freedom to explore strange new knowledge about the world, how the world works, how everything from atmospheric pressure uh, to the human body and the genome, how that works in a way liberated from any of the taboos that we used to have. Different political and theological establishments who stopped us from venturing into strange places. Uh, having that freedom helps you to understand the world. And if you understand the world, you can begin to manipulate it. And therefore, we enter the, the second important freedom, the freedom to experiment with new technologies, implementing that knowledge in strange new ways. And that could be um, specific technological inventions, medical drugs, uh, but it can also be specific business models that uh, manages to produce more, get more food out of every acre of land, uh, but also to distribute the goods and services that we create in a better way to make it more easily accessible at a cheaper price for more people. So you need the freedom to explore and the freedom to experiment, but you also need the freedom to exchange. So if you have great knowledge in the atmospheric pressure and how to uh, build a uh, steam engine. I've specialized in how to kill bacteria. Yeah, we can exchange that knowledge so that I get access to that mechanical power, you get access to antibiotics. And it helps us to make use of the brains and talents and hard work of other people. So we need these three things, 
exploration, experimentation, and exchange. And that goes then, that comes with a particular, particular political economical system, one that gives people freedom to do these things. And that's basically the rule of law so that you know what's going to happen if you, and you won't arbitrarily be, um, be imprisoned because of doing these things or uh, the fruits of your labor won't be confiscated if you do these things. Uh, you need property rights, free trade, free speech, all those things that come with a, with a free civilization, basically. So something which I always get kind of confused, I mean, it's not confusing, but it's, it's something which I just found throughout my life is that whenever someone asks me something I'm interested in, I, I mentioned oh, I'm interested in politics, let's say, it's really common that people will respond saying, oh yeah, things really are bad and they're really like, they're, things are getting worse, aren't they? It's all so depressing. That's just the kind of stop response. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. People will yeah. basically give that response. And I always feel like I don't even really know what to say to them. And I kind of just politely say, yeah, I guess so. But actually it doesn't tally with my understanding of the world at all. Obviously there's loads of really bad stuff going on, but in, in terms of like the general historical trend, my understanding, which is massively backed up by everything you say, is that things are basically getting better at an unprecedented rate. So it's quite funny that at this point, which is, so the last 200 years are basically the greatest 200 years in all of human history. And within that, the last 30 or so years are even more incredible, just as a kind of little section of that 200 years. And in the middle of that 30 year period, everyone you speak to constantly turns around and starts telling you how bad everything is. It's really negative. It's, it's such a strange yeah. phenomenon. And that's something which you really address in your book really well. So what do you think is going on there? Like, what do you mean when, you, when, when we say this? What do we mean when we say that people generally have a bad perception of what's going on and their, their attitude is not in line with the reality of the progress which is being made? Well, I, I absolutely share your impression. This is what people tell me all the time, why they say when, they, when I tell them about the world that that can't be true, because, you know, I read about all the bad stuff that happens all the time. Yeah. Uh, I think it's around 5 to 6% of the British and the Americans think that the world on the whole is making progress, which means that more people believe in, uh, you know, ghosts and astrology than believe in human progress. And, uh, well... Why is that? Well, I think that's because they've got a distorted view of what's going on in the world. Because when you ask them about what has happened in the world in the last 30 years, when it comes to, for example, poverty or global hunger, and you even give them three alternatives, it's increased, it's decreased, or roughly stay the same. Almost everyone is wrong about these things. And one of the studies that I did on these things even showed that uh, having a university education distorts your perspective even more. You begin, yeah. <laughs> become even more pessimistic about the world. And as the uh, late professor of international health, Hans Rosling, put, used to put it, uh, it means that human beings are worse than chimpanzees at understanding what's going on in the world. Because if you wrote down those three answers on three bananas, the chimpanzee would pick the right banana at least a third of the time. Whereas uh, university graduates would pick the right banana only a tenth of the time uh, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. So it's not just a general sense. It's a distorted view of the world because they don't got, get the basic numbers right. They why, say this. Why do you think we've got that distorted view? Do you think there's a kind of particular ideological push behind it? Or like, what's your explanation for why people are being actively misinformed because i guess the point about the chimp analogy is that a chimp would just randomly choose something whereas humans tend to be being actively taught or kind of pushed into making the wrong conclusion so what is the ideological 
Yeah. What's going on there ideologically? Well, I think it's partly it's ideology because you always want to tell people that everything's going to the dogs and I'm the only one who can protect you, yeah. obviously. And you hear that from, from all sides. That's what the environmentalists say. Look, the world is falling apart. That's from the nationalist right. Uh, the world is falling apart and I'm the only one who can protect you. And the left says the same thing about capitalism generally. No one goes to a protest saying, look, things are improving more than ever. And yet you have to give me lots of power <laughs> to, yeah. to, to slightly improve things a little bit better. So everybody's got a stake in exaggerating the world's problems obviously, but it wouldn't work if it didn't um, talk to a particular part of our human nature, I think. And that is, we are the worrying kind uh, for evolutionary reasons. Um, we, because we are the descendants of the ones who survived on the savannah, and they were the ones who weren't content, who weren't relaxed and sort of, yeah, we were great at hunting and gathering the last week, so let's just relax and take some time off now. They were eaten by something, uh, or they died in a storm. It was the worriers, those who looked towards the horizon, worrying where will the next problem come from. They had to worry about those things, those who did survive, and they passed on their stress hormones to, to us. And that's good. We need to worry. We need to understand where the problems are. But unfortunately, it collides with a um, around-the-clock, uh, seven days a week uh, news cycle where we have information about all the world's problems. So suddenly, it's everything that happens and that we hear about that are problematic aren't a threat to our survival. But our Stone Age brains think they are. So we get attacked. We almost drown in bad news from all sides all the time. And we think somewhere deep inside in our reptilian brains that this is a threat to us. So we tend to exaggerate it. So, so you've also criticized a whole bunch. I mean, there's basically a whole industry, I think, especially on the left and also even kind of like mainstream liberal left politics, there's definitely a whole industry of constantly presenting everything in a really negative light. And people are almost just taught that the way to be to sound really intelligent or to think in a deep way about an issue is just to take it and then try and present it really negatively. That's what I increasingly think is going on. And so you've called out a whole bunch of different authors. They basically make millions by selling books and give speeches and give tours everywhere talking about how everything's awful and how we completely need to radically change everything um, or we're basically doomed. And actually you think that's almost completely the inverse of the reality. So who are some of the people who you think are kind of guilty of spreading that view in a way which doesn't perfectly match the facts? <laughs> uh, well, it's almost difficult to pick one because they're, they're everywhere. Everything <laughs> yeah. I read on, uh, on Twitter and every book that I pick up, is, it's the end of the world, uh, unless sort of we turn around, things around uh, towards my, my side of, of stories. Uh, but uh, people I've, I've read recently in the um, Anglo-Saxon debate, you have the George Momios, the, the Naomi Kleins, uh, and, and others who, who push that narrative that it's sort of, the time is short. We don't have many hours to, to save the world. And, it's, uh, and, and of course, it's the same kind of narrative, from, but from another perspective, from a Donald Trump. And it's really the, um, 
what H.L. Mencken, the, the American writer, used to talk about the how, how the demagogues and, and, and many in, in practical politics function. Uh, the key is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety. Uh, all these crises, all these fears, they create a kind of societal fight or flight uh, reaction where we want to hide from the world. We need someone to protect us, the strong man, the big government who, who is there to, uh, to protect us and keep the others at bay, control them and, and uh, keep them in their place. Uh, or fight, uh, find the scapegoats, find the, the person who did this to us and, and will beat them up. And that could be the immigrants or it could be the 1%, the rich, the, uh, or just the, that other country that happens to have a trade surplus with us. So, okay, so another thing which you talk about, which is related to this, is the fact that a lot of people push back against your argument when you do present them with these facts by saying, yeah, okay, fine, maybe people are getting richer, but we don't actually experience any of that wealth because it's all concentrated in a few super rich individuals and it doesn't trickle down at all. And actually, I, can un I definitely understand that because I guess there is a natural, I just think it's kind of natural to see someone with, say, over $100 billion and just think, why do they need $100 billion? Obviously, that's massively oversimplistic, but what's your response to that? Yeah. Uh, well, the interesting thing is that people who say that worry a little bit too much about uh, the money they have in their wallets and in their bank accounts and too little about what they can buy with it, uh, the real purchasing power. You know, Oscar Wilde used to say that a cynic is someone who knows the price of everything, but the value of nothing. And I would say it's actually the same thing with the anti-capitalists who talk about why should they have 100 billion and we don't get nothing, basically. Which is, tr I don't think that's true if you look at uh, dollars and cents and, and pounds uh, in the wallet as well, if you really look at the data. But I think the more important mistake is that they lose sight of the fact that all the things that make for a good life in a material sense, access to um, knowledge, technology, goods and services and nutrition, all of those things have basically collapsed in price in the last few decades. And we've failed to look at that because we only think about, so what do I make? What's my, what's my wage, my, my uh, annual income? Uh, and I, I often mentioned the uh, example of one of these super rich people, a Bill Gates or a Jeff Bezos. Yeah, he might be 10 million times richer than I am, but is he really 10 million times better off than I am? If you look at his access to things like good health, uh, his lifespan, the risk that his kids will die before five, or access to education and knowledge, in almost all of those instances, you can see that access to those things are more equally distributed now than they've probably ever been before. And because we have these technologies, we've got the internet, we've got superior business models that have distributed goods and services at a very low price, unless you happen to be into um, the, the latest branded uh, goods that, uh, that you sort of make us pay for, for the design of it. But the basic stuff is cheaper than they've ever been before. And why is that? 
That's because a couple of people like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos have been allowed to make hundreds of billions out of creating these new business models and technologies that made these things come down in price dramatically. So I think those who worry about inequality, they worry too much. They, they think of the price, but not the value. They think of the, the income, but not what it can buy. Yeah, I, I remember you gave the example in the speech which I heard you give about how people focus on the fact that he's able to take a private jet, which is, I mean, loads of people can't even conceive of ever being able to do that. But at the same time, only recently has become possible for people to fly abroad for like very little amounts of money. So in reality, the disparity in what you're actually able to do isn't that great in a historical sense. It's just the amount of actual wealth which exists, the difference in that is huge. But in terms of what you can actually do, the differences aren't too huge, which I think is a really interesting one. I also think you gave the example of an Indian guy who had to share his only pair of trousers with his brothers. And it's like, if you lived as a peasant 200 years ago, that's what most of the planet would have been like. It's you barely have enough clothes to live. Your clothes are all made of really uncomfortable wool. You have, don't, have, you don't have an education you can't read. You don't have the money to feed your family. Now, you, most people around the world have those things. It's just that some people have an unlimited amount of wealth at their disposal, which we don't. So it's kind of much more complicated than just looking at it in terms of pure inequality. I guess that's your argument, right? Exactly. And the only way to improve that dr dramatically and long term for everybody is through more growth through creating more wealth, solving more problems tomorrow than we do today. Uh, people are so focused on redistribution today between the rich and the rest of us. Uh, but that's marginal. That's almost nothing if you compare it to the power of economic innovation and growth long-term. If we can get a per capita growth rate at 2%, it means that we double our average income's wealth in around 35 years. Uh, and that's the thing we should aim at. That's the one thing that has made it possible for us to, well, not to share one pair of trousers with our brothers uh, anymore, to be able to know that we can feed our kids and so on. And that's the only thing that can do it long term. Redistribution is trivial. But more than trivial, it is dangerous because it, also, it threatens that innovation, that search for new business models and technologies that could improve that growth long term. You, you've mentioned something Anne Rand said. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was essentially along the lines of we need to guard against the people who constantly say that we need to change the existing system because if you just kind of sit back and concede that argument, it sounds like they're making a really progressive, decent argument a lot of the time. And I, it's often really hard not to have a lot of sympathy with that. I, on a lot of the points they make, I kind of have some sympathy. But if you just cede that ground and you don't make a proper intellectual defense of the system, which is currently helping to alleviate poverty and malnourishment and increased literacy rates and stuff at an unprecedented speed, we're putting an, like something incredible at great risk. Um, so, so is that how you think we should approach this debate by robustly defending the system against people who present it as negative? Yes and no, because you know I'm I'm not a defender of the the system as such or of the status quo, uh, but of the things that are there that creates constant progress and 
gets us away from the status quo in a way because it might seem like a very conservative argument you know you know what you've got and let's not put this at risk yeah. um but but the point is that these things that we've created a couple of them like um open science technological innovation uh, entrepreneurs continuing to revolutionize our business models that's the very things that will break down the status quo and create better opportunities for more people in the longer run and that's why i really think that those who challenge that and would regulate it control it or build barriers to the rest of the world so that they don't face competitive pressure and therefore the dynamism that they need to to constantly innovate they are the ones who are really reactionaries they are the ones who would not just get us back into the status quo but even turn it back into reverse uh but but that's very much in line with what you're saying i think we need a defense of the things that we take for granted the kind of things that continue to revolutionize the production of all the goods and services that make our lives better uh and that's not there really because it's not uh, doesn't seem very sexy to to do that but it's the kind of thing that uh, we all rely upon for a better future yeah so i used to be super super left wing now i kind of think of myself as largely apolitical but something which I was, which definitely helped move me away from being completely committed to being really left wing was just noticing that people just think that criticizing the system without a good understanding of all the benefits that the system is bringing and without actually trying to rigorously analyze the effect that might have in practice on preventing the positive gains we're making right now from continuing to be made and the effect it would have had in the past if we had done the things some of the things they're seeking to implement 30 years ago internationally or 200 years ago, whenever, it would have potentially yeah. prevented all the amazing things which have happened from happening. And it's so much easier to just not know about that stuff and basically constantly snipe from the sidelines and suggest the whole system is really corrupt and everything's terrible than it is to appreciate what we've got and then try to basically make modifications, but within the context that you do understand that it isn't all just basically a terrible dystopian system that we're living in at the moment, which is it's so rare, I think, to hear people accurately kind of do those two things at once um so related to that one criticism which i guess you could make of your argument is on the environmental front a lot of people will say okay sure we're making loads of progress but this is an actual genuine threat and that is something which i do have quite a lot of sympathy with in this to the extent that i guess you can say that everything's going great but obviously something like the environmental problems which the world is facing they do really need some sort of drastic action presumably in order to stop something really bad from happening um what's your response to people who make that argument yeah no i'm very much in sympathy with that as well and that's one of the reasons why i used to be very much of a critic of of big business and uh, and the industry because i saw it as polluting the nature until i began studying more of history and uh, my ancestors history in in northern sweden realizing that the worst environmental problem they faced was a lack of electricity and of modern technology to keep the water safe and to make sure that they had electrical stoves for example which meant that they had to burn fossil fuels 
indoors or, or wood or, or dung indoors for, uh, to produce food, which created respiratory diseases and lung conditions uh, that killed people when they were young and still kills millions of people around the world. So every generation, every kind of technological uh, system creates its own environmental problems. And I would say that uh, we have been able to solve many of the worst ones, the ones that killed people uh, when they're young. These problems with bad indoor air is being solved around the world uh, right now in every country that is industrializing, getting richer. Then we create new problems because then we burn fossil fuels to, um, to, um, for electricity and, and power generation. And that's a problem as well. It doesn't mean that we should retreat from it and go back in time because that was even worse, killed even more people. Uh, it means that we need more solutions to deal with that. And I, for one, think that the only solution then is better technologies, green technologies that will make sure that we have fuels and power generation that doesn't create these, uh, these problems. And only more wealth and only more no scientific knowledge and technological ability will create that in long term. Uh, we see that the, the, the countries that are leading the world in um, cleaning up uh, not just sort of traditional things like safe water and indoor air, but also cleaning up the industries and uh, making sure that we pollute less and less carbon dioxide in the air. They are the richest countries with the uh, most advanced technological abilities. And other countries have to go through that process as well to do it. First of all, save the lives of their kids, and then they can think long-term about the environmental problems. And something else that you said, which is really interesting, is about how the percentage of the population who die annually or get really negatively affected by environmental storms or floods or extreme weather events has actually dramatically gone down and is now the lowest it's ever been in history. So could you kind of expand on that point a little bit? Yes, this is a little bit counterintuitive, uh, but uh, the risk of dying in a natural climate-related disaster like flooding, storms, extreme temperature, um, extreme heat and, and drought, uh, the risk of dying in that has declined by around 95% since the 1950s, since my parents were young. Uh, and that seems counterintuitive because we've heard all about more, more storms and more natural disasters. But the key is, it might, it's not that we've had fewer natural disasters, it's that, it's that we've created more wealth, we've created more, again, science and technology and that makes it possible for us to deal with things like that preventive measures but also to deal with the disasters when they appear uh, and and that's um something that happens and that, that's being led in richer countries the richer they are the better they are at, uh, at dealing with that the same kind of earthquake taking place in uh, in chile um and Iran kills 100,000 people in Iran, but almost nobody in Chile. And that's because the Chileans then, they have the wealth and the knowledge to build in better ways, and they have medical treatment, and they have um, 
precautions in place, alarm systems and abilities to evacuate and so on. In Iran, they don't. So that's another way in which we were saving lives, uh, even when it comes to natural problems. And even though they might increase through global warming, the only way to, to save lives is through technology. And okay, so one final point on this, and then we should definitely move on to your most recent book, which is coming out in a few days. So, but on the environmental question, do you not think there's a case to be made that if you just allowed the markets to completely deal with this on their own, realistically, it's hard to imagine that without also some kind of like external pressure group effect on what's going on in the markets, they wouldn't really correct in a way which would allow this problem to be solved. So a classic example is like, Greta Thunberg and people who subscribe to her worldview. There's loads of it which statistically and kind of factually, I think, isn't purely accurate. And I think that a lot of the things you say haven't been properly factored in by those people. But at the same time, they've kind of got a good point, which is that we really need to focus on this stuff. And if we don't keep talking about it, no one's actually going to do anything. And I think you can definitely see that to the extent that whenever there's a kind of a different issue it comes to the fore, which isn't environmentalism, it kind of loses its place from in the headlines. And then I can't really imagine, for example, a huge oil company actually modifying its behaviours unless that pressure is kept on it. So do you think there's a case to be made for, okay, fine, it's not completely rational as an ideology, but it's definitely got a key kernel of truth, which we may as well think about because it's necessary to help the markets or our societies adapt to the threat? I agree. Uh, okay. And you know, a a business or an oil company that pollutes the forest out there, or my lungs, or the beach where we're swimming and fishing and so on, doesn't act on a free market because it privatizes the gains, but it socializes the cost of what they're doing. So they're basically yeah. opposing a tax, a, a penalty on, on all of us. So in a real free market uh, world, in a perfect uh, free market, they would compensate us for every damage that they are doing in this way. And uh, it's difficult to measure every individual damage that is being done. Uh, I would love to see such a system, but I think that we can imitate such a system by making sure that polluters pay for the damage that they are doing. And I think that one way of um, doing that is to make sure that we have a uh, fee on carbon, for example, CO2 that we're emitting into uh, the atmosphere. If you do that, you're gonna have to pay for it. not as a way of picking pockets from the economy to the government, but in uh, rather to um, return that revenue by reducing income taxes, for example, or something like that, to make sure that people are free to make all their decisions. But if it imposes a cost on every, on everybody else, they that will be costly. That's a powerful incentive for everybody to make sure that they both consume and produce in an environmentally friendly way. But it's not a way, and this is the key issue, it's not a way to tell people exactly how to do it, how to solve that problem. Because that's the way I think that governments go wrong. Because politicians, they always have their favorite technology that they happen to love because it creates jobs back in their own district or something like that, or their friends or their, their great contributors to their campaign or something like that. But they can't pick winners because they don't know the future of technology or the world. But if we have this 
general polluter pay principle, but then allow consumers and businesses to make their own decisions, we will have a natural process of trying to experiment with different ways. And hopefully one of them will save the world. Right. So now this would be a great point to move on to talk about your most recent book, Open. Except before I do that, something I forget every single week is to say, could you, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you could leave a comment, hit subscribe and hit the like button. That is great because it really helps the channel grow. And also this is available as a podcast. Just search for E2 Review on any podcast app and it should come up. And if you could give us a rating on that, that is also great because it helps people find it. And yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Okay. So could you tell me a bit about your most recent book, uh, what it's called, where we can get it, and also what the kind of central argument is of the book? It's called Open, the Story of Human Progress, and it's out September 30, I think. Um, yeah. So you should be able to get it in your local bookstore or on any online bookseller. And that's really the story about how mankind creates progress but also once in a while destroys it all so it's in a way a history book uh, from ancient mesopotamia and to our time about all the golden eras in history because this is not the first one this is not the first era when we've had a longer period of scientific discovery technological innovation and economic growth um it's only the only one that is still in place, um, still intact. Uh, the previous ones, they all appeared because they were in cultures that were, for their time, relatively open uh, economically, scientifically, uh, open to different influences globally. Um, but they also all ended at some point, and often because in periods of trouble, could be invasions, it could be pandemics, great depressions, People lost faith in this openness and began to look for this strong man to protect them. And that, unfortunately, was the very thing that undermined the openness and therefore also the progress. So it's a history book. It's about human nature. So it's about our psychology. And it's also a warning that this has happened to every previous efflorescence in, in human history could happen to this one as well. So what do you think we need to be aware of to prevent it happening to our one? First of all, we have to stop taking things for granted. It, we have that old saying, he that has satisfied his thirst turns his back to the well, and we forget about all the things that created uh, these things. That mustn't happen because it can be fragile. It can be undermined. Uh, th those freedoms and, and those uh, explorations and experiments. And also, in times of trouble, whatever the trouble, count to 10. <laughs> Don't act through our reptilian brains and, and, and hope that the strong man will protect us all because that kind of instinct worked wonderfully in the Stone Ages when we had to fight our way out of every problem. But in a complex world, in a complex economy, um, fighting our way out of problems means that we destroy everything that we hold dear. And um, so try to think more long term and think, think things through. Okay, great. So yeah, guys, definitely go check that book out. That sounds super interesting. Where can people follow you online or keep up to date with what you're up to? 
It's actually uh, fairly easy to use just the big platforms. Uh, Johan Norberg Official on Facebook is a great um, place to find me, or Johan K. Norberg on uh, Twitter, uh, and also my website, johannorberg.net, N-E-T. Thanks for listening to this episode. Um, if you could give this show a good rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're using, that's great because it really helps people find it. One final point, all of our interviews, including this one, are available on YouTube. So if you prefer watching things rather than listening to them, you can find every interview there. Just search for E2 Review Podcast, either on Google or on YouTube itself, and our page should come up. I'll also include a link to our page in the show notes. So just click on that and it'll take you there if that's easier. Okay, thanks for listening.